Hey, welcome to today's uh, content around Ask a Pastor. Uh, I'm joined by Dr. Terry Thomas, who's professor of New Testament at Geneva College. He also teaches uh, for us often here at Orchard Hill Church. So Terry, welcome. Thanks for making some time to be with us today. Uh, good to be here. So be we here. have a couple of questions and I'm going to read them exactly as they were written and okay. uh, uh, look forward to your insights. <laughs> Me too. So uh, <laughs> uh, I would like to ask you if you could talk about how our United States Constitution and the Bible, the Bible and the United States Constitution are tied together. I don't believe our children are being taught this in schools, in our schools. In fact, I believe our schools are doing just the opposite, which is leading us towards socialism and other beliefs. All you have to do is look at how our government is making laws and turning away from the Bible or from Bible beliefs. We can no longer totally depend on our elected officials to do this. Thanks. So, uh, so Terry. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, help us understand uh, the concern that's here and, uh, and how you would see those things tying together. Well, I... I would say this. I would say that there are multiple views about this, mm -hmm. right? In uh, in academia, you know, presently, there's a there's a kind of liberal spirit that tries to suggest that um, you know the the Bible didn't have that big an influence in you know or Christianity didn't have that big an influence in the development of uh, the American you know experiment, and uh, and if it did, it didn't have it in a any positive way, you know. Uh, and <coughs> so in, in a certain sense, it's a little difficult to, to line up the origin of the Constitution and the present day experience. Because, you know, in a certain sense, there, there, were, there weren't options available to the Constitution people that there are today, you know. Mm -hmm. So you didn't, ever, you didn't have any postmodern relativists, you know, back mm -hmm. in the late 1700s. They were, you know, Actually, you know, in the United States at that time, I think the vast majority of people, 95% plus, would have been Protestant Christians, mm -hmm. you know, or at least would have said that they were Protestant Christians. Yep. Um, and, and so as a result, you know that that, that would have a heavy influence on those people at that time. We don't have that same situation, you right. know, in America today. Plus, also philosophically, we've changed, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of just the cultural issues that have been brought up and so forth. So that you don't have, you don't have people looking to, have, to make that connection, mm -hmm. you know, because of the changes, you know, in sort of philosophic thought and so forth. However... Uh, there, there's a guy who uh, he wrote a book called you know reading the Bible with the founding fathers okay okay and he makes a pretty good argument for mm. uh, an, a significant influence of the Bible on the the writing of the Constitution and the early approach to the Amer you know, American Republic um, and his his argument is kind of threefold one is that he says uh, he says, you know, the, if you, the people of that day were, as we said, Protestants, and this was a powerful influence in their life, and had been for many people who had immigrated to religious reasons were the very religious reasons for coming. So you wouldn't think that somehow they would go all the way to immigrating because of religion and then drop it, you know, to say, let's mm -hmm. just get another idea for now how we ought to live. Mm -hmm. So he says, you know, it just seems ridiculous to think that these people wouldn't have brought their, you know, their, their model of what, Gave him direction for mm -hmm. life to him at that point. So, and then secondly, part of the belief was that the the a republic of some kind, you know, uh, would require uh, for people to be to self-govern in a way. It would require a uh, a, a virtuous 
citizenry. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, you couldn't have self-government in, in a democratic kind of way. And then, not, who cares about the way you know people would have developed? And clearly, in the late 1800s, you know, although we were there were Enlightenment influences, you know, humanistic influences, and so forth. You'd have to say Christianity was still the mm-hmm. most powerful, you know, notion of where you were going to see some kind of discipline of, of uh, uh, you know, virtuousness develop mm-hmm. within people. And so it's a little, again, a little silly to see, mm-hmm. to think that people wouldn't have been influenced by that. Then what you have is you have a bunch of, uh, of information, not always directly quoted in the Constitution, say, for instance, itself, but by the founding fathers. Uh, about their their way of seeing things in a kind of biblical perspective, where they quote the Bible, right. you know. Uh, and by the way, quoted they quote the Bible even by people who you wouldn't consider to be necessarily confessing Christians. You know, you get people who, you know, Thomas Paine, or you get right. uh, uh, what's his name, Franklin. You know, uh, you know these guys are. They're not necessarily Christians, but they still think that the Bible holds some kind of persuasive authority for, yeah, yep. a, a, as given a, a direction for things. So you see that, you know, and it's a little hard to say then that these, the, inside the document itself, though, you know, uh, it's a, the argument I think is even a little stronger, you know. Okay. And one of the things you'd see is something like this, that there had been a great influence by uh, reformed thinkers, reformed theological thinkers, particularly from the Netherlands, I think, in the origins of the United States in terms of the separation from England, because they had had that same situation in separating from Spain Mm -hmm. earlier, and then they got tossed the Inquisition on top of that, which didn't serve real well, and then then a lot of people left from there, but they uh, began to say, hey, um, what isn't it always the case, or doesn't seem to be the case, that when a country gets to have supreme power of some kind, they tend to show the worst of themselves in it, you know? So the idea of, for instance, just one of the things in the, the separation of powers, mm-hmm. for instance, you know, the checks and balances, you know, they're built by the three pieces of government. So, uh, that, I think, is pretty clearly a reflection of people, you know, holding to some notion of, of depravity, total mm-hmm. depravity, you know, that you, supreme power corrupts supremely, and so right. you gotta protect yourself from that. And you know, the, the person that you could trust the least is the person that has power. So you wanna make sure mm-hmm. that you save them from themselves as well as you save them from other people. And I, I, that's, that's a, I think that's a, a, a historically and biblically der, you know, driven idea, and I think you can make an argument for that, mm-hmm. for that kind of thing. Also in the Constitution, there are things about people making, making oaths about their office and so forth. Uh, oath making is not exactly a you know, postmodern <laughs> notion of any kind. Uh, it would have come from that idea that you know, uh, people, people should take seriously the things that they commit themselves to. And I think it has a kind of notion connected to it of some kind of uh, final judgment about the activities mm-hmm. of human people. So in other words, you want people to take seriously these things, make them take an mm-hmm. oath, because that oath carries with it some sort of future accounting of it. Right. You know, and where would that come from in a naturalistic world? You know, there's right. no future other than the pure circumstances of things. So you have that sort of notion. I think. And of course, the Bible's very concerned about taking oaths. Right. You know, and it makes that point over and over again. The Bible's concerned about the separation of powers from mm-hmm. that thing about the, the, the total depravity. 
And then I think there's another thing is, is that I think that, you know, when people got together, they, uh, in, the, in that time, and they were thinking to themselves, well, you know, we have this influence in our own lives, and what would we look at for an idea of what the law and a state ought to look? Mm-hmm. They would look to the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, they would look to, and particularly the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and to the, you know, the first five books, you know, the, the Pentateuch, I think, to get those ideas of what that would look like. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of our laws oftentimes Have are reflective of those things, right. you know, things that you don't think. I, I, I was one of the ones in the book that I mentioned, the surprise, I never realized that the, the treason, in order for you to be uh, convicted of treason, you have to have at least two witnesses to corroborate. You think, you think well, gee, I wonder where that yeah. came from. Yeah. <laughs> you know? There's a connection here. Somewhere. There's a connection yes. here. You know? So you have a lot of that kind of thing. And then uh, and also, it, you know, it's not, it, you don't want to say this, though. You don't want to say that the only influence of the Constitution is the Bible, mm-hmm. you know. So you can't equate the two of them. And when you equate the two of them, that's when problems begin to happen. You know? What do you mean by that? Say more about that. Well, I, I think what happens is you begin to absolutize your particular historic moment. Mm-hmm. In other words, you think somehow you have the authority of God on your side for everything you do as long as you don't violate the Constitution you know, okay. in some way. Um, and so you justify, it can, it can be the kind of source of being able to self-justify everything you do. Okay. Uh, you know, you'd have to, you hate to say this, that if America was a Christian nation uh, at the founding fathers with the Declaration of Independence, they must have missed something with that whole slavery thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it took them a long time yeah. to kind of figure that out, a really long time. And yeah. we're still dealing with race issues mm-hmm. in relationship to that. So, you know, it's not like they didn't act like a Christian nation, right. you know, immediately. So apparently it wasn't driven as pure. And yet sometimes I think we have that sense that if we are a Christian nation and we, in the 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 you know our general direction has been determined by these kind of uh, this document that's driven by biblical insights and so forth, mm-hmm. then it's right and what we do is mm-hmm. right and we can self-justify all right. these things. And I, I think that's a kind of nationalism that we want to avoid. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I don't think there is anything. Christianity is transnational. It's not national. Right. You know. Right. Uh, and it's it's. It shouldn't be any particular nation. As soon as they absolutize their nation as being God's country, mm-hmm. it, te- it tends to slip into being able to use that as a rationale for right. doing whatever it is that you want to do. Right. And we see a lot of things where people claim God's led them to do it, and you say, I wouldn't pin that on God. Right. 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 So. And and I think the other thing is is that it, we the that that. The th- experiment in the Netherlands, which I think influenced, you know, the, through the Calvinist roots into the United States, it had a willingness to, uh, because of the problems that that experienced in persecution, it, it had a willingness to say, "Hey, we want to make room for people who dissent." Right. You know, so you know, in in the typical modern day, if you don't, you know, if you don't bend your knee, or if you do bend your knee at the national right. anthem, you know, uh, there's something wrong with you. Right. And we, you know, can we imagine though that somebody for religious reasons would not feel that they could give their, matter of fact, right. should any Christian ultimately give their ultimate allegiance to a nation right. of any kind? Uh, no, I don't think so. And if you begin to do that, or you act like you do that, or you criticize people who don't do that, then you slip into this kind of nationalism, okay. which I think is dangerous. Well, thank you. Let's, uh, let's transition to a second question here. Okay. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, and the question basically is, does God love Satan? Mm-hmm. And so let me let me read this because it's uh, well worded and yep. thought out. So my ten year old son likes watching 
some of the Ask a Pastor segments with me, and I've been watching, and what he would, I've asked him what he'd like to learn. Recently, we were discussing the armor of God. We were doing a kid's Bible study. Anyway, he had a question that I for sure couldn't answer and later came back and asked if he could ask a pastor. So here it is. He came back and asked, if God loves us no matter how bad we are and will forgive us no matter what we would do, would he forgive Satan? Does he love Satan since technically he created Lucifer? I wish I were making this question up, but I challenged by this kid on a daily basis. He thinks about everything a lot. Okay, first thing I'm gonna say is, is that this 10-year-old kid already has a scholarship to Geneva College to study building because <laughs> he's, uh, he's asking some questions that a lot of people never get to yes. <laughs> at 10 years old. Uh, and I'm gonna, here's, what I, here's my way. First, I, I wanna take this approach. I wonder why he asks the question. Mm. Okay, what motivates the asking the question? And, you know, if you read that passage that he said he was doing the Bible study on, mm -hmm. this is in Ephesians 6. It says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So all of a sudden the devil jumps right into, mm -hmm. the, into the story there. Yep. Okay? It says this, for uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and against authorities and against powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So again, the, I think he's getting a feel for this passage mm -hmm. and the place that Satan plays in it, and mm -hmm. he's, he's worried about Satan, right. you know, which you should be worried about Satan. Uh, and then it goes on, starts, you know, put on the different pieces of the armor of God. And one of them is that you should put on the uh, shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, mm -hmm. okay? So at least three times in about 10 verses there, Satan gets mentioned yeah. in the midst of this struggle for uh, some kind of consistency in your Christian life. Yep. Okay. So he's got it in that mm -hmm. sense. He's got, the, he's got the right idea that there's something important about the nature of Satan and who he is. On one hand, I, you wonder this though. You know, I, I don't know. And I, I'm just, this is pure speculation yep. on my part. But you know, you might think to yourself, you know, maybe I put the shield down for a moment and a couple of those flaming arrows from the Satan got into me, you know? Mm, mm. And maybe as a result, I have actually sided with Satan mm. rather than been opposed to him, you know, mm -hmm. you know? And as a result, maybe I deserve whatever punishment Satan deserves. Now, the right. great thing about the way this was stated previously was there seemed to be the recognition that God loves you unconditionally, mm -hmm. you know, and that there's nothing you could do that would be so bad that he wouldn't offer you grace. But maybe the question behind the question is, could I ever go so far that I end up wherever Satan is? Exactly. And therefore, yeah. Yeah. And so the good news is, no, he can't mm -hmm. go that way. You can't go that far. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no way, uh, you know, your, your, your status with God is not based on what you do. It's based on what God's done for you. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you know, you, that, that's, that should be good news to him. Mm -hmm. Namely, that even if I messed up and I seem to have sided with Satan, I'm not going to end up where he ends up, mm -hmm. you know, at that point. So that's, that's really good news. The second part is a little, has a little more complicated, right? One is, I would say, in one level, God does love Satan, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and the way so is because he's a, uh, he's a cre creation of God's, mm -hmm. you know? And God loves his entire creation, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it be, and everything that God creates is a reflection of his goodness and his, 
you know, his beauty and his love in, mm -hmm. in the way that he creates it. He pours that the very creation itself is the outpouring of the love of God, you know, to, into the world with all kinds mm -hmm. of great possibilities, including Satan as one of those heavenly beings that mm -hmm. were cre and created marvelous, marvelously, you know, as mm -hmm. we hear about him, beautifully even. You yeah. know, that God took some time to make him yeah. special, you yeah, know, spectacular, spectacular, yeah. you know. So you'd have to say in that, in that kind of um, metaphysical way, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah, God loves Satan he, in the sense that he is a representation of his, his nature in, the, in mm -hmm. terms of being part of the creation. However, morally, he does not love Satan, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, Satan gets uh, pretty dragged over the, uh, the rocks pretty worthily for all the things that he is. Mm -hmm. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a, you know, you name it. He, there's all kinds of things that he gets pointed out as being here, there, and elsewhere. So in that sense, he doesn't, uh, you know, he's not, he's not to be loved by those things that, and, uh, and morally, he's, he's not loved by God. In mm -hmm. that the same way that people who are in sin mm -hmm. are not morally loved by God. Mm -hmm. What requires them in order to be morally loved by God is for, uh, for there to be an atonement for their sin. Mm -hmm. you know, and God offers that love unconditionally to those people through the atoning work, the person work of, of Christ. The difference is that Satan is an angel, not a human being. Mm -hmm. And so the atoning work of Christ is not offered to... So why not? Being. I mean, if God is on a mission to redeem all of, you know, creation, yeah, uh, and certainly that's a Reformed viewpoint, understanding of Scripture, why is Satan outside of that then? Well, uh, this is my own question now for you. Okay, well, I, I, got, <laughs> I got two answers to that. I got two answers to that. One is... It's not like somehow uh, the justice of God in terms of his punishment for sin mm -hmm. uh, is outside the whole redemptive you know, frame. Mm -hmm. Seeing justice done is part of the redemptive picture of God. Right. You know? so, and by the way, that's good news to a lot of yeah. people, I think, especially yeah. those people who have, have experienced a lot of injustice to know that, hey, in the end, this isn't yeah. going to sit. You know, God will not let yeah. this happen. So it's not like punishment mm -hmm. in, in terms of the judgment, the wrath of God, is outside the redemptive scope mm -hmm. to begin with. Now, the question of why would he not forget, well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe God has some plan. to mm -hmm. be. I just don't know, have any idea how he would do it. But I can say this. The redemptive work of Christ is limited to human beings, mm -hmm. not, it doesn't involve this heavenly this, this is a great passage, okay. I think, that, that talks about. This is in the second chapter of Hebrews. It says, it's not to angels that he subjected the world to come, okay, about which we are speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified, what's a man that you're mindful of him, the son of man you care for, he made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. Then it says, he talks about this, he says, in this, Christ comes, and then what he does is, Christ represents uh, an experience through his suffering of the grace of God, so that, uh, so that other, he might taste death for all people. And then in the, it goes on to talk about who is it that he tastes this death for. It says he tastes it for his brothers. He becomes a human being like human beings. That's the atoning sacrifice mm -hmm. for human beings. It's not for mm -hmm. angelic beings. And then it says this, since the, children of the since the children have flesh and blood, that's talking about us, he too shared in uh, their humanity so that his death might, be, might destroy him 
who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, mm -hmm. so the redemptive work of Christ actually carries with it the punishment of Satan mm -hmm. in it. And then it says this, uh, and, and frees those who li whose lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not for angels he helps, hmm. but Abraham's descendants. So a clear statement. Yeah, yeah. pretty clear that the, yeah. the redemptive work with revealed in the Bible mm -hmm. and the personal work of Christ is limited to human yeah. beings, not, yeah. not to angels. Now, could God figure out some? I, I'm not God. I, yeah. you know, I don't know. Uh, do we have another one more minute? We do. Uh, barely. Okay. Well, uh, Just a minute. Okay. Here's what I would say. There's one other issue that I think this question brings up. Well, I, I'm pretty sure he probably didn't have in mind. Mm -hmm. but, and that is the origin of evil. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you can talk about God loving Satan before he falls, yep. but then you have to, eventually you're going to ask the question, why did he let him fall? Right. You know, and then you're going to be back to that, which is a, is one of those presently unanswered right. questions of theology. It's the chicken know. egg question. Yeah. How, so how do you have a God who's all powerful and loving and yeah. sin come into the world, you know, and yeah. without him being the origin of evil, you know? Right. And uh, I think that question is, is connected to that, which makes it, Right. muddier, you know, in some ways. So I guess my answer is sort of metaphysically God loves Satan in the sense he's part of the creation. Morally he doesn't, and he doesn't participate in the possibility of, of an atoning work of Christ because he's not a human being. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Terry Thomas. If you have questions, send them to askapastor@orchardhillchurch.com. We'll be happy to uh, take advantage of your uh, desire for content uh, in future episodes. Have a great day.